Welcome to Temple Talks. This is Rabbi Jason Klein, and I am here with Day Seltzer. Day is a longtime, I should say lifelong congregant at Temple Israel of Minneapolis. Day is a teacher here in Minnesota and a graduate student studying to receive a dyslexia specialist certificate at Mount St. Joseph University in Cincinnati, Ohio. This is actually a prerequisite I've learned for the doctorate that Day hopes to move on and study for, um, a doctorate in reading science at the same institution. Day, welcome to Temple Talks. Thank you, Rabbi. You're welcome. Day, wow, I'm so excited to, to jump into this with you. Dyslexia specialist and a doctorate in reading science. I might feel both intrigued, I have to admit, maybe even a little envious. I know we've talked about this a little bit. So maybe you can start just telling us about you know, what these programs is and what, what, what you're already learning and what you hope to, to keep learning from them. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm currently enrolled, like you said, in the Dyslexia Specialist Program at Mount St. Joseph. And what this is, is it goes a little bit beyond what a teacher would learn in a regular teacher education program. We really dive into the brain basis of reading, diagnosis and remediation of reading difficulty. We talk about um, a lot about linguistics and phonetics and phonology, the study of language, the study of how children learn to read in those different components. And this is a program that meets the requirements for the International Dyslexia um, Association. So it is an accredited program through them, which is a, something that more schools are are looking into getting because there actually are currently in Minnesota, no teacher education programs that are accredited by the International Dyslexia Association. So is the science of reading is, is old, it's established, but it's becoming more well-known in colleges of teacher education. And that's part of what I'm passionate about is spreading the word about the science of reading and answering people's questions and learning more myself because I am still very much on this journey. Thank you. So let's not assume our our listeners' backgrounds. Maybe we can start actually by by defining dyslexia. I I I know I have have heard that there are different kinds of dyslexia. And perhaps you could illuminate that a little more. But 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 just in case someone doesn't know what the word means or or um, might have some misconceptions about it, why don't we start there? Yeah. So that's we could talk for an hour just about different definitions of dyslexia because th there's actually no one agreed upon definition that's used universally. The International Dyslexia Association defines dyslexia as a difficulty in reading that is phonological in origin. We can talk more about what that means later. The International Dyslexia Association also says that it's often unexpected. It's an unexpected difficulty given how the student performs in other areas. Not all reading scientists agree with that unexpected part because it implies that, well, a child must be doing super well in the rest of their studies in order to be dyslexic. But we actually know that when we compare students who are labeled as dyslexic with students who have difficulty in all subject areas, that we actually see very similar reading profiles. We call those other types of students garden variety, poor readers. But there's really no difference in the types of intervention that you would use. Does this child need support in reading? Are they struggling? Have we given them um, some assessments that can let us know that they're struggling? And then, okay, so what are we going to do about it? Sometimes you could, people can get really hung up on the terminology, but it's really more about the behaviors of the student, the difficulties the student is having, and the types of intervention that we would use. So just to sort of 
put this to bed, the idea that dyslexia means I look at the word and I read it backwards. It sounds like that might be one piece of one variety of what somebody might experience, but that's not necessarily the brushstroke that we should be painting every variety of dyslexia with. Actually, Rabbi Klein, the idea that dyslexics look at words and see them backwards is a common misconception. We've actually known since the 70s and 80s that dyslexia is not a visual-based disorder. Although students with dyslexia do commonly have things like letter reversals, that's not what dyslexia really is. And the reason for those letter reversals are a little bit complicated. Dyslexia is a difficulty with the phonological component of language. So actually the sounds of language, which can manifest itself in a difficulty in. So let's let's do an example. So when I say phonological, that's a big word, right? And people are mm -hmm. like, well, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by, by phonological? So would you like to participate in a little exercise with me, Rabbi Klein? I would be happy to. Great. So I'm going to give you some tasks that I would give to a student to figure out if they might have some phonological processing difficulties. Great. And we'll start with something easy, Rabbi Klein. Start with like a pre-K level here. All right. Say okay. bookcase. You want me to say bookcase? Yes, I do. Say bookcase. Bookcase. Now say bookcase, but don't say book. Case. Very good. So that's an example of taking a word apart, analyzing its parts, and being able to manipulate it. Let's do something a little more difficult, something more along the lines of a first grade or late kindergarten level. Say cat. Cat. Now say cat, but don't say k. At. Very good. So what you just did there is actually a very complex thing in your brain where you had to think about the sounds in cat, k, at. You had to identify them. What does she want me to take out? Cat, take it out, and then re-blend the sounds a and t into the word at. Right. You did that very quickly. A it sounds like with bookcase, it sounds like with bookcase, like those middle two consonants sort of combine into one. And then maybe there'd be another version of the world, which you'd ask someone like, like you could ask someone this and they might kind of skip, like not necessarily think of one big consonant sound as. Is that right? Am I kind of getting it? Yeah. You, so what, what often happens with, with children who have these difficulties is number one, it might take them a lot longer to do that. And then number two, we, they might actually miss sounds. So let's do another example. This, this yeah, will, this will okay. so let's try something a little bit more tricky. Say slat. Slat? Slat. Yeah, like, like a slapped in a, a wooden slat. Okay. Now say slat, but don't say ul. Sat. There you go. That's tougher, right? It's a little it sure, tougher. It sure is. It sure, sure is. Time to long. Yeah, for sure. What we might expect with a child who has a reading difficulty is that they might not get to sat. They might say at. They might say lat. They might say spat. They're having difficulty with figuring out what are the sounds in this word and how to manipulate them. And this is a really important prerequisite to reading that lots of people don't think about, right? People think about Oh, dyslexia is a visual difficulty. They see the letters and they don't know what they say. When in fact, it's actually kind of backwards. Letters really don't say anything, Rabbi Klein. They represent speech sounds, right? So what comes first, the ability to read or the ability to speak? Children learn to speak naturally. They don't really need much instruction. They just need speech in their environment. They learn these words. They don't learn to read first, right? And it was the same way in the history of 
of language that we learned to speak first. And then later we invented writing to represent those sounds. In order to master the written code, I need to be a master of spoken language and manipulating the sounds in spoken language. And oftentimes this is what our schools are really missing in intervention with our students who are struggling readers. And this is something that's not very widely known where when you were talking about children with dyslexia seeing things backwards, this is a really common misconception that no one should be ashamed of having because this is often how dyslexia is portrayed. But years of studies about eye movements and using MRIs to look at people's brains when they're reading, when they're speaking, we actually know that it's a difficulty with sound, with the phonological processing of language that manifests itself with a reading difficulty. It sounds like you're saying that even if somebody is reading something silently, then there's this kind of like spark in our brain that goes through the, the spoken and heard language part of our brain to translate it into meaning in a way. In fact, you are exactly right, Rabbi, that the speech centers of our brain are actually very involved um, in the reading process. And that when you have someone read silently, those actually do light up because what we do when we read, people think that you see the letters, they quote, make sound, and then you read them sort of visually. That's not what occurs. What we actually do, we have a visual input, right? So of course we see letters, right? That There is that visual piece. But the areas of our brains that are activated are actually these speech parts and the our words, the pronunciation of those words are stored in our brains. And then the technical term is that they're quote, mapped onto the letters in a process that's called orthographic mapping. If any of you out there really want to do some heavy Googling, go ahead and type orthographic mapping into, into your search bar and you'll find all sorts of really interesting research about this really fascinating process that is kind of counterintuitive when you first hear, hear about it, but is very well established in the, in the research literature. It sounds as if there's not really such thing as reading to ourselves or reading, like, you know, or reading, reading quietly as it were, that even if, even if, um, even if we can't be heard perhaps by the people around us, that somehow our brain, whether we like it or not, is, is on some level hearing the words, if you, if yeah. you will. On, on some level, this is true. And so I thought there might be thinking, well, not me, you know, when I read, I don't, I don't necessarily hear the words. And what's really interesting is that reading research has moved from where it was in like the early 1900s to where it is now, where people used to be sort of doing thought exercises and thinking about, well, what does it feel like when I'm reading, right? And what do I think about when I'm reading? But actually, if we, if we sort of just consult our own intuition about reading, it'll often mislead us because a lot of unconscious processes that we are not really aware of are happening in our brains while we are reading. And so what we really need are the tools of modern science to be able to analyze what is really going on in our brains while we're reading, because a lot of it is actually invisible to us and can feel really counterintuitive and strange when you first learn about it. All right, so today I'm a little um, intimidated to ask this, but are there different ways different people learn to read? That's a great question, Rabbi Klein. I'm going to answer it in two parts. The first part is no. Simple answer. It's <laughs> a simple answer. But the second, the second part is that there are differences between individual learners. So, so let's dig into it, right? So many people think, well, you know, I'm a visual learner. 
So I learned to read this way, or I'm an auditory learner. So I learned to read this way. This is the way I was taught to read. This is the way that, you know, worked for me. But actually think about reading, not as a creative process, like you would think about painting or drawing or something like that. Think about reading as a brain-based process, something that your brain actually has to get hardwired to do. Something like learning to crawl. We all know that there are differences in when kids learn to crawl and, you know, different kids are different types of crawlers, I suppose. But the the processes that happen in our brains to help us learn how to do this are pretty universal, right? The processes that happen in our brains when we learn how to speak, apart from certain children who might have developmental delays in that area, they're really very similar because we're all one species, Right. And, and our brains pretty much work the same way, no matter where we come from. Of course, there are some variation, but generally speaking, we're looking at one process. And this is, in fact, how it works with reading, that our, our brains have sort of one pathway, without getting too technical, that, that they pretty much use in order to begin to learn to read. There are different areas of the brain that are recruited, but profiles of successful readers, when they're reading, their brains look very, very similar, right? But interestingly enough, children who are struggling readers who have been taught in sort of what are often called whole language approaches where it's not about learning the sounds and mapping them onto letters. It's more about looking at the shape of the word or memorizing how the word looks or paying attention to context clues. We actually see that the brains of those children, um, the research indicates that there is some difference in, in those brains where they're actually trying to use the visual side of their brains in order to access this information and it's not working. It's not an effective path. And then actually, if you take those children, you put them in research-based interventions, actually the, the areas of their brain that get activated change to the right area, the areas that have to do more with sound and those sound pathways. And so you can try to teach a child to read in different ways, in visual ways. However, that's not really going to work. The way that we we know that works, right, is strong phonological awareness instruction coupled with strong phonics instruction, as well as instruction in morphological awareness and some of the, the bigger pieces of, of language. But it's not the, the look and see approach that some of you might be familiar with. But it sounds like that you're saying that, that, that just because an approach to how children are taught how to read sounds cool or novel or different or interesting. It doesn't necessarily mean it's scientifically uh, based and that, and that for the educators and for the parents who are listening to us, that's something to, to pay attention to. Absolutely. In fact, the, the US, the United States government has commissioned many different meta-analyses of reading research, as has the British government and the Australian government. The most recent meta-analysis being the report of the National Reading Panel from 2000 that did a huge meta-analysis and had a big review of all the data we had up until that point. Talked about sort of what we consider the five pillars of reading, phonological or phoneme awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension. And there have been many, many, many studies since then. The science is settled. People talk about the reading wars, but those are really wars based in ideology. They're not really wars based in different scientific perspectives. The, the science of reading is pretty settled at this point. Thank you. So, all right, just want to ask, where does that leave us, particularly for an English language learner, with so-called sight words. 
That's such a great question. I'm very glad that you asked that. So what when we look at people's brains, when they are reading words that you might call, quote, sight words, we actually see that the- I mean, brain- maybe, maybe we should, I'm sorry, maybe we should define that also. I, yeah. The way I understand sight words is that is that in a language such as English, this is going to be the Jason Gary Klein <laughs> attempt at the definition. You tell me how I'm lay, doing it. Lay it on me. Lay it on that, me. That, that, that they're in a language such as English where so much that we read that does not seem kind of safe phonetic. I'm not sure if that's the right word. That, that there's, there, there's certain words that seem to be uniquely pronounced in certain ways that don't follow the overall rules that the majority of the words are pronounced. And I don't know, how's that? And therefore we, we so, teach our learners to recognize certain words that are exceptions. Bad, bad definition, okay definition? Well, I'm, so, I'm actually, I'm, it is a bad definition, Rabbi, right, but I'm okay. super glad that you, that you said it because it's a very common misconception. There's actually a different definition of sight word in the reading research. So when we talk about sight words in, in research terms, we talk about any word that is instantly recognized for instant retrieval, right? And that would be a, a sight word. This idea of, you know, so-called more irregular words is, is what I'm going to call them, more irregular words. What we actually see both through modeling and in, in studies with, with actual readers is that our brains actually process so-called regular words like at, cat, and irregular words like maybe said, right, where the AI is making that N sound. They, our brains process these words in the same way, where we actually still map the sounds of a spoken word, in this case, said, said, onto the letters of the word said, right, where we would associate the phoneme or sound with the letter S, the N phoneme with AI and the d phoneme with D. And actually, when you're instructing a, a child, what the research tells us to do is, you know, we would say the word, for example, said, and then we would, you know, point to the different letters. We say said, and I would say to my students, oh, what sounds in said are unexpected? What doesn't match what we see? And they would say, well, the S sound, right? Because Usually, eh doesn't go with AI. I would say, okay, well, what sounds match the letters? They would say with those and the d. And doing this helps make explicit for students that what we're doing is we're thinking about the sounds in a spoken word that we already know, and we are associating them with these with these letters, right? And so we actually approach it in a similar way that we would to cat, cat, except that we point out the differences between the sounds and 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 the letters or the graphemes. And this is a approach that has a little bit more research to back it up than just using flashcards and having children visually memorize words. And the reason why that never seems to work is because that's actually not how our brain works when we're reading, right? And you've got a much better auditory memory, Rabbi Klein, than you actually do a visual memory. And I can prove it to you. Which way is the president facing on the front of the dime? Do you know? I don't know. How many times have you held a dime in your life? I mean, tens of thousands, probably. Tens of thousands of times. You don't, you don't remember that, right? Sure. But I'm, I bet you do remember the words to your favorite song. I bet you do remember dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands and thousands of words, right? Like if, yes. I, if I put a page of text in front of you right now, you'd be able to read it no problem, right, Rabbi? You're an excellent reader. I think I could read a lot yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you could. But how would that be possible if you had a visual memory for each word when you can't even remember the way that a, the president is facing on the dime? All right. So 
Wow. Wow. I'm blown away. Thank you. What, what does this mean about, and I want, I want to, I want to put a Jewish spin on this and maybe this will be, a, maybe this will be a transition at the beginning of a, of a slow transition, but we as Jewish educators teach our children Hebrew. And it seems to me that we do a certain amount of them hearing individual words out loud, probably before they start to learn Hebrew letters individually. But maybe we can broaden this from just Hebrew, but it certainly applies in the, in the Jewish world, in the diaspora and Hebrew learning. It seems to me like there's a lot we could learn about if, if one is growing up in an English speaking household and listening to primarily English around them in school. I get this feeling that there's a lot to learn about how we as Americans can teach second languages and maybe how we might be falling short. Could, could I say? As far, as far as the science of reading goes. Oh, absolutely. Well, 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 because, because I think what I'm hearing from you is that if we, if that speaking comes first, yes. and sometimes I think, I think of my own Jewish education and learning to read Hebrew and only much later learning to kind of the, the, to get to a point uh, where I could speak with any similar yeah. fluency to what I read yeah. took, took years in the making. And maybe that's because it should have been flipped around. It, exactly. And in fact, one of the real science-based practices is moving from speech to print. And that's actually the title of a very excellent book by Dr. Louisa Motes for anyone out there who's interested in, wow, wow I really want to dig in more. I want to learn more. From Speech to Print is a great book by Dr. Louisa Motes. Um, it's that's fairly, there's some technical stuff in there, but it's, it's a little bit more accessible than, you know, maybe reading an article in a, in a scholarly journal. I highly recommend that. But yes, moving from speech to print is, 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 is the way that we develop very strong readers. And as you say, the language is actually so important, you know, thinking about reading as a, a manifestation of language. And in fact, there's a famous idea out there in the research called the simple view of reading, which was proposed by Goff and Tunmer. Oh gosh, I, I think in the eighties. And what it says is that good reading comprehension is the product of the ability to decode times your ability to comprehend language, right? That having good language comprehension plus good decodings, not plus, times, Times good decoding skills equals good reading comprehension. You need both those pieces, right? You need to be able to associate speech sounds to words, but you also need to understand the language that you're that you're saying, right? Um, you could probably teach me to read in Finnish pretty quickly because Finnish is a very regular uh, language, but I wouldn't have good reading comprehension because I wouldn't understand the words that I was reading. You need both. You need associating sounds with with words and letters, but you also need deep comprehension of spoken language, which is something that's often neglected. So bring it back to, to the Jewish lens, right? What do the rabbis teach us about prayer? That it's not enough to just say the words, you must look at the words, and it's not enough to just look at the words, but you have to have that kavanah, that intention inside of you. And when I think about the science of reading, I think of that kavanah as really comprehending what we're reading, right? We need to be skilled decoders, but we also need to be thinking about what it is that we're doing at the same time. So it sounds like we're like maybe maybe we've created almost an artificial distinction between reading, quote unquote reading, which I think we're really talking about as decoding. Like if we if we were to sort of 
create this distinction between reading and comprehending, it seems like maybe what we're talking about is actually a distinction between decoding and reading, right? Like reading with comprehension as it. Yeah. The way that we use these terms in everyday life, of course, are a little bit different when we're talking in a more scientific context. We want to be super precise, right? So we might talk about decoding versus language comprehension that people might think of under the umbrella of reading, but we know that it's really these two things. We read both in order to do to do good reading. And yeah, I, I think for our audience, you know, anyone who's ever, you know, been able to read in Hebrew and had no idea what you're reading, right? You had that decoding piece of the equation, but you were missing that language, um, that language comprehension piece. But often for our dyslexic students, it's reversed. Dyslexic students are classically students who have excellent language comprehension. If I were to read this child a passage out loud and ask them, hey, what happened? They'd be able to tell you, oh my gosh, they know what's going on. But then I ask them to read it and that decoding piece is weak. So we think about strong language comprehension, weaker in decoding, sort of the classic profile of a dyslexic student. And you can actually have the reverse too. You can have strong decoding, weaker language comprehension. These types of students are called hyperlexics, which means that they can read just about anything, but they don't have very good comprehension of the language of what they're reading. These students are a lot rarer than dyslexics, but they are out there and it's, it's very fascinating. Thank you. So I appreciate you, you drawing on Jewish tradition. I was starting to think about some of the ideas that were inspiring me in thinking about this. I think one of them gets, you know, the very opening of the Torah gets recalled in our daily prayers, Baruch Shamar, blessed is the one who spoke and the world come into, came into being, right? Like, like in the beginning. God created heavens and the earth, as it were, you know, and, and we go a verse or two, Elohim, or or, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God didn't have to do anything else, but, but say it. And I think there's so many lessons here about how the power of our words, but it sounds like, but it sounds like, um, in the beginning there was speech and, and I, I'm thinking even about the Kabbalistic texts about the uh, rabbi Glazer has, has taught, I think from Sefer Hayatzira over the years, this idea that the, that the world kind of came to be with 22 letters and 10 digits, right? That the letters themselves, but there may be a little more complicated because, because are they, are they, you know, are, are they being spoken? Are we, you know, is it the words that we see on paper either, either way though? And, and this is something that, you know, you had pointed out to, to me a few weeks back was we as the Jewish people have the reputation of being kind of people of the book or people of the books, so many books, not just the ones you can see behind me in our, you know, in our, our, our zoom chat that we're having. Um, but, but, but what do you, what does this mean to you? And what, you know, what, how does it sometimes, how do you think it sometimes gets in the way when we as Jews are teaching particularly young learners, but maybe any learners Judaism when so much is bound up with this act of reading? Oh, gosh, I wouldn't say it gets in the way. I mean, I think in, in Judaism, we have such a wonderful tradition of literacy, but I would say that it's it's not just reading, right? It's not just the words themselves. We don't just teach our children to read. We teach them to discuss. We teach them to argue. We teach them to debate. We teach them to pay attention to the sounds of the words. We teach the trope. We teach, you know, looking for meaning inside the words, breaking them apart, associating them with others. 
And so when I hear that we're the people of the word, you know, I see that in a very broad concept, right? Of the spoken word, of the written word, really a people of language, right? And I think that's why we have such a strong, well, one of the reasons, right? But we have such a strong and wonderful tradition of, of literacy, you know, within Judaism is that because we're really focused in not just on silently reading on the page, but really on communicating and using language and talking about what we read on the page and then producing more written work that more people will talk about. And it's that cycle and that aspect that makes such a really healthy and wonderful environment for the development of reading. You know, one of the things parents ask me is they say, well, what can I do with my, my youngest ones? You know, when they're not in school yet, what can I do? And really developing oral language, having robust discussions with your children, eliciting more language from them, that is so incredibly helpful. Playing with language, doing nursery rhymes, having children, you know, play word games with you, you know, like, hey, let's make, let's, let's see how many rhyme chains we can make. Pear, bear, where, there. These are actually prerequisite phonemic and phonological awareness skills that literacy gets built on. And when we're having those, those word games and that play and that interplay with our children, we're not just building relationships with them, but we're building their capacity for language. Beautiful. I'm also hearing that that, that, that stereotype of two Jews, three opinions is that even if you only express the opinion out loud, it's still contributing to your overall, the overall ways in which our minds are going to, and to engage into to listening and reading and speaking and comprehending. Yes, absolutely, Rabbi. I think that's that's very well said. So I, I know we're coming close to the end of our time, but I, but I was thinking as as a Jew, as a teacher, as a lifelong Jewish learner, as a, as a, someone who is quite quite learned, both in the science of education and in Judaism, we all have a lot to learn. But 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 I still think you're very learned. Look for whatever, but every degree of my opinion is uh, worthwhile. What, what, what foundational Jewish texts inform your thinking about, about all this, inform the science of reading or inform experiences, the positive experiences, the traumas, the bumps in the road and any of this? Oh gosh, it's, it's tough to pick, you know, sort of just, just one or even, even just a few. I think for me, one of the, the texts that I really like that I've actually been rereading right now is the book of Job because Job has everything taken from him, right? And then what does what does his wife say? Kind of the immortal, the immortal words, you know, curse God and die. But what does Job do? In fact, he doesn't. He he does not curse God, but he does bewail his fate. He does talk about how horrible things are for him. And what do his terrible friends do? They come to him and they say, well, you must have done something, right? You must have done something wrong because you know God, you know, protects the righteous and 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 you know afflicts the wicked. So you must have done something wrong, right? Or 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 buck up, buddy. You know, things will get better. And and Job is just like, no, like this, you know, I didn't do anything wrong, but this whole thing is just crazy. Bad stuff happens. God gives, God takes, blessed be God. And what does, and God actually makes an appearance later, right? God comes in and he starts talking to Job and he says, you know, who are you to, to judge me, you know, to say that this is so hard for you? Who can tilt the bottles of the sky? You know, who can, who can clutch the ocean in, in his hands, right? It's me. You have no idea. But then he, what does he say to Job's friends? He says, 
you know, you have not spoken the truth about me, but Job has, right? He says to the friends who are saying, God is always just and the, you know, good people get good stuff, bad people get bad stuff. God says, you have not spoken the truth about me, but Job has. And I think that's such a Jewish thought, right? That it's not, we do good and we, and we, and we try to help others and we try to do what's right, not because we're going to get a reward, because this is who we are. And this is who God is. And this is who we are as a people. And I also take from that a lesson about, you know, for families and for children who, who have reading difficulties, that this is not something that was brought upon you. This is not some type of punishment. You know, this is just that this is the world in which we live. And, and we're going to deal with that, right? And we're going to work with that. And we're going to strive to make that better. But it's, there's not some type of judgment. You're not bad. Your child is not bad. You know, we are not bad. We are all just working, right? And that's what Judaism is, doing the work, I think. Whatever the work may be for an individual Jew, this is my work, but everyone has, has their own, I suppose. Dave, thank you so much for this conversation here at Temple Talks. You've given me a lot to think about. I hope it, I know, I trust that it will not be our last conversation about, about, about education, about how we learn, about how we, how we as educators inspire others to learn. You've certainly helped me with some of my own definitions and misconceptions. And I, I hope also provide our listeners for some great frameworks to, to think about this. Thank you, Rabbi. And for those of you out there, um, you know, From Speech to Print by Louisa Motes is an excellent resource. If you're looking for other information online, the web page, the website Reading Rockets is an excellent resource that you can check out. There's lots of wonderful, wonderful resources on that website. And of course, you know, this is something that I, I am learning about, that I've been learning about for a long time. I do not have my doctorate yet, so I am still a learner. We come to the work and we're all learning. And it's not about ego. And I think that in Judaism, we're always trying to know more. And why do we want to know more? So we can do tikkun olam. We can, we can be better Jews, better people, and make a better world, I suppose. I'm with you. I'm with you. That website you just referred to, readingrockets.org. And um, thank you again, Dave Seltzer, for being here uh, with us today. Talks. My pleasure.